Good day once again to our listeners on Waterberg Stereo. You're listening to Van Velden Duffy Legal News. We will again deal with a couple of legal questions, have a discussion that you will hopefully find interesting and informative. Our email address info at vvd for van Velden Duffy.co.za if you want to send us any questions or comments. You're welcome uh, to do so. My name is Volker Kruger. I'm a lawyer here at Von Felden Duffy in Rustenburg, and we will be dealing with three, I think, interesting questions uh, today. First one, a uh, discussion with uh, Nicola Lemaitre regarding a husband that admitted in divorce proceedings to installing cameras in uh, their house to spy on his wife. And uh, we'll have some comments from Nicola in that respect, and she will also specifically answer the question as to whether blameworthy conduct is still relevant in divorce matters these days in our law in South Africa. So stay tuned for that one. Then, uh, secondly, another discussion with Nicola, uh, where she will be answering the question as to whether I can claim interim maintenance from my spouse pending the finalization of my divorce. So if uh, any of our listeners are interested in that question or may be affected by a divorce at this stage or maybe might be considering a divorce, then I think uh, you should listen to what uh, Nicola says in that regard. And then finally, I will be talking to Janis Ulifil about when a buyer of fixed property would be able to rely on force majeure resulting from the COVID-19 lockdown to excuse performance. You might remember that in a previous program, we also had a discussion about force majeure. So he'll specifically deal with the whole issue and legal principles related thereto in respect of a buyer of fixed property. We're going to talk to Nicola Lemaitre again about some divorce issues. The heading here of one of the articles on Network 24 is Man erken in skysaak, hy het kameras geinstalleer. The husband in this divorce matter um, installed some cameras in his uh, house to spy on his wife. Uh, Nicola, is that right? What, what happened there according to the article? Yes, so um, this article it reports on this um, ongoing divorce proceedings um, in which this Pretoria businessman is involved. Um, so through the proceedings, it becomes very clear to the reader that this party had a very acrimonious relationship and they were now fighting over with who their child should stay primarily. Um, so during these proceedings, the husband actually admitted to installing um, those cameras in their bathroom. He says he did it because he suspected his wife of having an eating disorder. Um, she is, however, convinced that there are other motives. Um, but there were a lot of allegations thrown around in court of him suffering from depression and being addicted to alcohol and over-the-counter medication. Um, also that he at some stage during their marriage attempted to sabotage his wife's motor vehicle. Um, so there's definitely a lot of dirty laundry being put on display in this matter, which is always... Um, quite a shame. Okay, well, as always, we can obviously not discuss uh, the specific facts in the article in, in, in detail or give any opinions uh, on the specific case at, at, at all. It's just a bit of a background. So, so in general, um, maybe I can ask you, in terms of blameworthiness, um, in terms of uh, improper conduct that any spouse in a divorce proceedings 
you know, might have been guilty of, let's say there's an extramarital affair or there was assault of one of the spouses or of the children or, or whatever the case might be. To what extent is that um, still relevant? Uh, you know, the, whoever caused the marriage to break down, uh, is, is that still relevant? Does that make a difference in the outcome of, of, of the divorce? No, well, um, and that's very important for our listeners to note um, that in our divorce laws, um, the concept of fault um, doesn't play a role. Um, so basically, this means that there's no guilty party in divorce proceedings and the fact that you're the reason for the breakdown of the, of the marriage um, or perhaps if you are the innocent party, it shouldn't, in principle, entitle you to anything less or more. Um, so the only um, factor um, or situation where um, fault may play a role is where the parties are um, one of the parties are claiming forfeiture in the divorce proceedings um, so that is if they are asking the court for an unequal division of the party's assets or liabilities or asking the court to move away um, from the strict application of their marital regime um, but even then um, this concept of fault it's not the only factor which the court will consider and the court will um, for example have to determine whether the party who, um, if I can say, is guilty, um, if he or she will unduly benefit from a certain asset um, if they are entitled to share in it, um, and then the court will look at any substantial misconduct. And in my opinion, the most important factor which the court will consider is the duration of the marriage, um, even more so than, than the idea of who is guilty or at wrong in, in, the, um, in the proceedings. So the court will um, be more inclined to grant a forfeiture claim if it has been a very short marriage, um, if the parties' assets haven't really joined together yet, um, then the court will, will consider it if there is also this substantial misconduct, like you said, affairs or assault, any of those type of things. Okay. Also, to prove that a marriage has been broken down, the marriage relationship irretrievable, that I think these days is also much easier to do. Now, many years ago, a court sort of could say no, or would maybe say no, or you've haven't convinced me there's still hope that this uh, marriage can be can be safe but i think these days you basically just make the statement either of the spouses can make the statement that the marriage has broken down irretrievably and the court will i think readily uh, accept that now without investigating that matter any further am, am i sort of right Yes, that's true. Um, it's not always necessary to put all of these very personal details on display in, in court. Um, so we always also try to explain to our clients if one party to a marriage feel that from their side the marriage has broken down irretrievably, um, it has. There is two parties in a divorce and if 50% of that marriage feels like it cannot continue, there's no, no, no way of restoring that relationship, then there is an irretrievable breakdown. Um, and basically, as you say, making that allegation in court, um, um, the, the court will, will um, in most circumstances, accept it and not really go further into it. Okay. So the um, for feature of, of assets, I guess, is primarily relevant in terms of marriages in community of property. In terms of children, uh, blameworthy conduct, uh, would that be relevant there? For example, if there's a, a custody and control fight or, or, or whatever the case might be in respect of the children, uh, might the dirty laundry there be relevant? 
Um, it definitely can kind of play a role and it is unfortunate that we see in divorce proceedings where children are involved. Um, it definitely tends to get more personal and fingers are pointed back and forth um, to try and paint one of the parties in a better or worse light um, to then claim primary care or to limit the other party's contact. Um, luckily, these disputes can be solved quite um well, I don't want to say easily, but by kind of putting the burden on another party, um, an expert like a social worker or the family advocate or a psychologist, um, we will then do a complete um, investigation um, regarding the parties involved and, and the children, and they will then make expert recommendations to court about the children's best interest and where they will be served based. Okay, makes sense. All right, thank you. I guess the message is that you know immoral blameworthy conduct you know in a divorce cases has, has very little uh, legal um, effect as, as, as such yeah. next is another discussion with uh, nicola lemaita our divorce law expert on interim maintenance and uh, in this case i again want to refer to a certain article as a background to the discussion uh, in the legal brief there was the heading judge rules wife can stay on pending divorce another juicy divorce story in the western cape high court um nicola what, what uh, according to this article happened there yeah um well this report on a judgment um which prevented a husband from selling their victoria bay house or evicting his estranged wife of 11 years from the property um, so this article basically says that um, the judge found that the wife was entitled to stay in their Victoria Bay house until the couple's divorce was settled. Um, so this was then an interim order that was made while the divorce action is still pending. Um, so it seems that this wife, she moved from the couple's Northern Cape farm and filed for divorce. Her husband then tried to rent out this property and he, he threatened to fetch homeless people and move them into the house. He entertained other women in the um, their matrimonial bedroom um, and he also told his wife to move out of this property in quite explicit terms. Um, so in court, this husband argued that his wife had no right to, to live in this um, property because it was, according to him, a holiday house, um, not a matrimonial home. Um, but the court completely dismissed that argument, um, saying that many couples, many married couples have holiday homes, whether it's by the coast or in the country, and they occupy these properties together because of the marriage relationship between the two of them. So the court found that she's entitled to stay there pending the divorce, um, and that will then finally be determined by the trial court when the, the divorce comes around. Okay, so this was all relevant to the interim maintenance issue related to divorces. Uh, and obviously, if uh, the divorce proceedings take a couple of months to finalize, interim maintenance for the dependent uh, spouse is uh, always an issue. So, so can you maybe, for the listener's sake, sort of in general, give us an idea of the basic principles applicable to the payment of interim maintenance, in other words, maintenance pending the finalization of the divorce. Obviously, after the divorce has been finalized, there's often also maintenance orders that are relevant. One spouse has to pay maintenance to the other spouse. But in the yeah. meantime, um, what are the principles? What maintenance can a spouse claim? Yeah, so as you say, this interim application um, can be brought to court while the divorce is pending, and this is done in terms of Rule 58 in the magistrate's 
in the magistrate's court or Rule 43 in the High Court. Um, as you say, it is also possible for the parties to reach an agreement on what maintenance should be paid, um, and it can also continue after the divorce, but this rule creates um, the possibility for, for a party to approach the court for intervention while the divorce is um, only starting out. Um, so this rule primarily envisaged um, to provide temporary assistance for, for women who had given up careers for the sake of marriage with or without children um, until the trial then comes around where the claims can be properly determined. Um, so I must mention this rule is not created to give an, an interim meal ticket to a party who clearly will not be able to establish a right to maintenance at trial. Um, so with that, we mean that it shouldn't entitle your spouse to, to something that he or she would not be able to prove and obtain as part of the final divorce proceedings. Yeah. Um, and also, although it's more usual for a court to, to order periodic payments of money, it may also order that other assets be made available for use by an applicant, like we also see in this matter where she had um, or she was given access to the property to stay in pending the divorce. Um, also important to note is that it's against public policy for a spouse to claim interim maintenance when living with another party. Um, and then when the court is um, approached with an application of this sort, um, it will consider the standard of living of the parties during the marriage, um, the applicant's actual and reasonable expenses, and then also the income of the respondent to kind of determine what will be fair in the circumstances, what can the respondent afford to pay, um, and what is the applicant um, entitled to, or what does she or he need during this interim period. And then, as we say, it's an interim order, and that will then be finally determined by the, the trial court in the divorce proceedings. Okay, so as a general rule, if that spouse that claims the interim maintenance is living with another partner, uh, he or she cannot claim interim maintenance from the uh, partner or from the spouse that, she, that he or she is busy uh, divorcing from. Is, is that correct? Yes, I think uh, even just in saying it, you can feel that it kind of, it feels wrong um, to claim maintenance from your, your spouse that you are in the process of divorcing and you are already living with another partner who's kind of taking on other obligations and then um, you are to still claim maintenance. It just, it doesn't sit right and as we say, it's against public policy. So as a general rule, um, you will not be um, entitled to claim maintenance in such a case. Yes, yes. Okay. And and the other important point maybe is that you can go to the magistrate court huh, to, to save some costs. You don't necessarily have to bring the Rule 43 application to the High Court. So uh, that, mm. that, I guess, helps a bit. Yeah, yeah, it's done in the in the regional courts, which can also, um, yeah, the entire divorce matter, wherever you have started the divorce proceedings, whether it's in, in the high court or the um, regional court, it has to be the same court um, confronted with the interim application. Okay. Maybe just finally one, one more question. What advice would you give uh, clients or, or listeners who are considering a claim for interim uh, maintenance? Are there sort of some final general guidelines that you could uh, give such a person? Yeah, well, um, it seems quite obvious, but a court, we have to remember, will be more inclined to grant an application made on reasonable grants or grounds rather than one um, that is um, contained or contains extravagant um, demands where you are asking for really something that should never come into play. It is um, meant to be an order to... to 
keep you on your feet while everything is going on with the divorce and until that final court can make the determination. Um, Then on the other hand, if you are the respondent, um, it's important to to show a willingness to maintain your family um, and that um, will be met with much greater sympathy by the court than somebody else who's trying to avoid his or her obligations. So reasonableness really is key from both sides of this. Um, So I would also say if you are the party against you, a claim for interim maintenance might be made. Um, My advice would be to keep on paying and contributing as you usually do. So this will then prevent the other party from um, proving a need for maintenance or more maintenance. Um, As I also said, then this will keep your side clean um, and show that you are not running away from your obligations. Um, On the other side, then, if you are the party considering an interim maintenance application, my advice would be um, to bring the application as soon as possible. Um, you don't want to grant the other party the opportunity or to put them in a position where they can possibly say that um, maintenance isn't necessary because you've been surviving on your own without this contribution for X amount of time. All right. I think that's uh, all we have time for. Thank you, uh, Nicola. Some valuable tips there on interim maintenance that can be claimed as part of the divorce proceedings. Right, next we're going to talk to Janus Ullefier again, a lawyer here at Van Verden Duffy, once again regarding the whole issue of the force majeure principle that might excuse a party from performing in terms of an agreement. And specifically today, we're going to look at the question as to whether a buyer of a fixed property can maybe use force majeure as an excuse not to pay uh, the purchase price in terms of the agreement, in other words, not to perform in terms of the contract of sale. Um, as we discussed um, on one of the previous programs here on Waterberg Stereo, Janis, uh, what briefly is force majeure? I think we should maybe um, first answer that question again. Is it the same as an act of uh, a God or is it something else? Yeah, thank you, Focus. So, a uh, force majeure, like we said during our previous discussion, it translates as a superior force or greater force, then, um, which will be an unforeseen force that makes it impossible to perform in terms of a contract. And um, we touched on our previous discussion that it isn't necessarily an act of God, although the most prominent examples is an act of God, like, for example, an earthquake or a volcano. Um, but it can very well be civil unrest, uh, protests um, as well. Um, so that is, in essence, what a force majeure is. And then most contracts will then have a specific clause that deals with the process that has to be followed in the event where a force majeure event then occurs, as explained in the contract, and it will dictate then what the parties will have to do. If the contract doesn't have a force majeure clause, then obviously the common law principle of supervening impossibility can also be invoked um, to excuse the party's performance in terms of the contract. Okay, and then I see there's a Rumdor Cape case that uh, you mentioned that we can maybe have a look at to see whether there's some sort of guide, uh, guidance that the courts give us in this regard. So uh, maybe firstly, what are the facts in this case? What happened there? Yeah, Volker, that's um, Rundal Cape versus the South African National Roads Agency, or then Sandral. It's a 2014-2015 um, decision, wherein Rundal Cape was a joint venture between two civil engineering companies. They contracted with Sandral 
to renovate a certain intersection uh, on the N2 close to Durban. Now, this construction site was very close to uh, informal settlements that were in economically underprived um, circumstances. And these communities then put a lot of pressure on Randall Cape then to use them as the labor for this specific project. And unfortunately, the protests uh, became a bit violent, like they are unfortunately nowadays, um, with cars being set alight and all in all just being uh, a danger to the labor force of Ramdul Cape that they were using at that moment. And at the end of the day, they approached the court for order to um, specifically declare that these protests are force majeure um, and that they may either be excused from rendering performance in terms of this contract if the court does find the protest to constitute a force majeure or that Sandra must pay them an additional amount per month so that they can increase the security. Okay, interesting. Uh, and, and what did the court find? Uh, were they successful with that argument? Yeah, for, interestingly enough, uh, the court didn't find uh, in, in, in Randall Cape's favour. They said that the protest did not constitute a force majeure. And even though uh, the protests were described as a force majeure event under the terms of the agreement, the agreement also specifically had a clause which said that um, Rumble Cape must use reasonable efforts uh, sorry, uh, to keep the site and the works clear of any unnecessary uh, obstructions. So firstly, the court said they didn't really take all the, the, the necessary steps and the reasonable steps that they could have. And then they haven't satisfied the court that they are really uh, prevented from, from rendering performance. So it's not impossible. It's just a bit difficult for them um, so the court said in, in, under these circumstances, the protest uh, wasn't a force majeure as, as prescribed in the contract. Okay. And yeah, in terms of a buyer of fixed uh, property, as we mentioned initially, um, do you think this case sort of gives us an idea what a court would find um, if any matter would go to court in respect of the current COVID-19 lockdown? Can a purchaser of a property now use that as an excuse that there's actually a force majeure in the form of the lockdown which uh, can be used by him as an excuse for not performing not paying the purchase price in terms of a contract of sale now Volker, what's very clear from this case is the court is going to look at the wording of this contract like we said um or like we've seen in the in the rundle cape case uh, um strikes and, and protest was mentioned as a force majeure, but the court didn't only look at the force majeure clause, it looked at the whole contract. And that's going to be the exact same with every case that you bring before the court. Um, if you want to decide whether or not you're going to be able, um, able to rely on the force majeure clause, you're going to have to look at what the contract um, specifies, what the contract declares or describes as a force majeure clause, and then you're going to have to make a factual finding as to whether or not your circumstances of your particular matter meets what is described in the contract. Um, you know, the question as whether purchasers can use force majeure, yes, they can, once again, if they meet the requirements of the contract. Although, in my experience, um, I've hardly ever seen sale and purchase agreements that caters for a, first majeure, a force majeure clause, rather. Um, um, yeah, I would agree with that. I, I also haven't seen that in uh, in uh, your normal uh, contract of sale of land. Yeah, So I think in most cases there wouldn't be a clause. So, um, yeah, the purchaser won't be able to rely on that. And then I guess the next question is whether uh, yeah, there's any 
common law um, right that he could use, uh, you know, to to once again rely on force majeure. Yeah, well, that's where we spoke of the supervening impossibility being the common law principle that one can rely on if the contract doesn't specifically have a force majeure clause. But once again, economic hardship, as I was about to say, that isn't really a ground for, for um, being impossible for you to perform. It's just going to be difficult. But unfortunately, there's case law to that extent where if it's economically going to be hard for you to perform, that's that's sort of your bad luck. You you are still bound by the contract. Obviously, if the force majeure, which is a specific clause in the agreement, does cater for that then yes, you would be able to rely on it. But like we said, uh, it's going to be highly unlikely that that the purchase agreement caters for the event where you don't have money. And there's there's other ways to cater for that. For example, um, conditions that you can that you can add into the contract. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks a lot. I guess the message for any purchaser or any seller or any estate agent who might be involved with the transaction of this nature at the moment is that. It will not be that easy to uh, get out of an agreement as a purchaser, but obviously one uh, would uh, once again have to look at the specific agreement to see whether there's a force majeure clause. So uh, if you are in a position where you uh, don't want to proceed with a transaction as a purchaser, we would certainly suggest that you go and consult your lawyer so that he has a look at the specific agreement and uh, advises you accordingly. Thank you, Janus. That's all we have time for today. Thanks for listening to us. Our email address, once again, info at vvd.co.za. Send us your questions, your comments, and then make sure that you tune in again the next week, Wednesday, between 3 o'clock and 4 o'clock, or Friday evenings between 7 o'clock and 8 o'clock.